Welcome to this special audio program accompanying the print publication of a new breast cancer patterns of care study of 100 U.S.-based medical oncologists. This is Dr. Neil Love. Faculty investigators Drs. Eric Weiner and Joe Sperano helped our CME group draw up this web-based survey, and when we obtained the results, I met with each individually. One interesting new addition to the survey was choice of chemotherapy in patients with node-negative, ER-positive HER2-negative tumors, and while we continue to see the majority of oncologists, more than 80%, integrating Oncotype DX into this decision, for this survey, we asked respondents to specify the likely choice of chemo in patients, either age 60 or 75, with intermediate and high-risk recurrence scores, and saw greater use of sequential anthracycline taxane regimens in patients with high recurrence scores, and more use of TC, docetaxel cyclophosphamide, in those with intermediate scores, and I asked Dr. Weiner what he thought about that. I don't know that the oncotype should guide us in terms of what chemotherapy we give. I understand on some level that one could rationally argue to do that because somebody with a high oncotype compared to an intermediate oncotype has a higher risk of recurrence. Potentially, there's that much more to be gained from a more complex chemotherapy regimen than a simpler regimen like TC or AC. But generally speaking, I don't order an oncotype to guide my chemotherapy choice. And in this particular woman who's 60 and has a T1B N0 cancer, I'd actually be pretty hard-pressed to give her a combination of an anthracycline and a taxane. How about the 60-year-old patient with the same one-centimeter node-negative tumor that's triple-negative? Our respondents say they use an anthracycline and taxane. Well, so, you know, in that situation, I think that we can feel a little more confident that chemotherapy is that much more effective. Although, you know, comparing that triple negative patient to a patient with an ER positive tumor and a high recurrence score, I'm not sure where the greater benefit from chemotherapy is. And patients with a high recurrence score and ER positive disease probably get a pretty big benefit. But for that patient with a one centimeter triple negative cancer. Some would opt for an anthracycline taxane combination. There are still plenty of people based on the fairly limited size of the cancer and the negative lymph nodes who would be very comfortable with a what I'll call a first generation chemotherapy regimen. What about oncotype in the patient with an ER positive HER2 negative tumor where neoadjuvant treatments being used? I haven't done it. I've certainly given preoperative hormonal therapy instead of chemotherapy largely to postmenopausal women who have, of course, ER-positive disease and typically have relatively low-grade disease. So I would not do it usually in somebody who has a poorly differentiated tumor, but I would do it in somebody with a well to moderately differentiated tumor. How about tumor grade? How does that factor in? And do you think there's any kind of problem with quality control in this evaluation? So we want to have our pathologist look at it and you know, the problem with grade, and in many ways this is what makes Oncotype a little bit easier to interpret, is that grade is highly variable across pathologists. And while I think that many of us find grade useful when we have a consistent pathologist or consistent pathology group interpreting it, I think it's often very hard 
to know what to make of grade from an outside institution or from a pathologist with whom you don't have a relationship. What about the use of anthracyclines as adjuvant treatment? I know you and Hal Burstein have used a lot of AC, but our surveys show much greater use of TC. We still give AC with some frequency. I don't think there's anything wrong with TC, but many would argue that for a patient with HER2 negative disease, that we probably have more data with CMF than we do with TC. And I think the biggest problem with CMF is that it's a long and sort of cumbersome regimen. I think we have a lot of data with AC. I think that we're getting more data with TC. I'm still interested to see a little bit more in the way of data with TC in different subgroups of patients. I think it's a fine regimen to use. What about Ocotypin node positive? We presented a situation of a 60-year-old woman, again, one centimeter tumor, but this time with two positive nodes. So at age 60, three-quarters of the docs would not get an Ocotype, a quarter would. And at age 75, it bumps up. Now almost half the docs would get an Ocotype. How have you been approaching this situation in your practice, and what's happened and what is going to be happening in terms of research data addressing this? Yeah. So I'm very comfortable getting the oncotype in that 60-year-old woman with two positive lymph nodes. I think it is extremely unlikely that oncotype will give us fundamentally different information in node positive than node negative patients. And while it's a single trial, I think that the experience in Kathy Albain's SWOG trial made us all feel a little more comfortable using oncotype in patients with node positive disease. And in truth, for that 75-year-old, I actually almost certainly wouldn't be getting an oncotype because it's very hard for me to imagine a 75-year-old woman with an estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer for whom I would be very anxious to recommend chemotherapy. If you actually go into Peter Ravden's adjuvant online program, you'll see that in a woman with node-positive, ER-positive disease, that the benefits from chemotherapy at age 75 are going to be extraordinarily small. The complications are greater than in younger women, and I think you'd have to think long and hard about it. I suppose in the 75-year-old who has absolutely no comorbidity, has a high-grade cancer, and has an oncotype that would support the fact that this is likely a cancer that is going to benefit more from chemotherapy or the patient will benefit more than I could consider it, but it's not going to be the norm. What about the use of adjuvant chemotherapy in older patients with node positive tumors, 75 and even 85, not just ER positive, HER2 negative, but also triple negative? In triple negative disease, most recurrences happen within five years. I don't have any difficulty conceiving of giving a course of chemotherapy to a patient with a two-node positive triple negative breast cancer who's otherwise healthy and 75 years of age. Because if, in fact, you prevent recurrence, you almost certainly prevent death, and that's going to be something that's going to be an issue in the next five years, not something that's going to extend out over many, many years. How about octogenarians? We had a case in one of our audio programs last year of an 86-year-old woman with multiple node positive triple negative breast cancer. Well, I haven't done it in an 86-year-old. I don't think I've given adjuvant chemotherapy to anyone over the age of 80. And even with a triple negative breast cancer in that 86-year-old, I would have to think long and hard about it. But I wouldn't absolutely say no. 
I'd want to make sure that she were the healthiest of all 86-year-olds. I'd want to consider the potential impact of that chemotherapy both on her quality of life and consider the potential medical complications she could run into because you know, we know pretty clearly that older women do have more serious medical complications with the course of chemotherapy. Less nausea, but more serious other difficulties. Let's talk a little bit about metastatic HER2-negative disease. And a topic that we've gotten into a lot in CME programs is, do you need to biopsy a MET? And we presented a scenario of a patient who was presenting with metastatic disease with a prior diagnosis, actually triple negative diagnosis with positive nodes a couple years previously, now presents with pulmonary nodules, hot spots on the bone scan. We asked them, would you generally obtain a biopsy on a MET? And then we asked them age 60, age 75. Age 60, three quarters, yes. 75 goes down to about half, 56%. How do you approach this issue? So I actually don't understand why age plays a role here because this is about optimizing therapy of metastatic disease, and it's something that's going to affect a woman who's 60 in the same way that it's going to affect a woman who's 75. I think the overwhelming likelihood is that this woman will have biopsy-proven triple-negative breast cancer. There is a little bit of discordance in terms of both HER2 and ER. I think there could be discordance with either of these, but I might be most concerned about making sure that it's a HER2 negative tumor because being able to use anti-HER2 therapy in this kind of situation would make a big difference for her, although the number of cases where there's discordance is probably no more than about 10%. Still, 10% is a number I'd be real interested in. Me too. I mean, it's why I would probably do it. And, you know, sure, there's been a lot of excitement with HER2-positive disease, but endocrine therapy still is a good option for people, too, and you hate to miss that also. It is. My sense is that if, in fact, this turns out to be ER-positive, it's going to be very low ER-positive. I think you could also approach it by restaining the original tumor for ER to make sure that there wasn't any problem then. So I think that you're unlikely to get a surprise there, but I would do it and I would want it restained for both ER, PR, and HER2. So not very often that you actually see that it's not metastatic breast cancer then? It's, you know, with this kind of situation in somebody who had, again, what's said to have been a triple negative cancer with multiple positive lymph nodes where she was at high risk for recurrent disease, I think the overwhelming majority of the time this is going to be metastatic breast cancer be a very different situation if what she presented with a few years ago was a one centimeter low-grade ER-positive breast cancer, then your pretest probability that this is metastatic breast cancer is just much, much lower. And then in terms of management of a patient in this situation, again, triple negative recurrence, we essentially say, okay, the biopsy is done, it's positive, it's still triple negative breast cancer, What are you most likely to do? And, you know, we kind of teased out whether they're asymptomatic, not asymptomatic, age, et cetera. But I think the bottom line is what you see here is taxane BEV as the number one choice, but also a substantial number of patients getting chemo, taxanes, capecitabine without BEV. What about this decision and the use of BEV in metastatic disease, including triple negative? Yeah, well, we know from the studies that have been done 
that bevacizumab works as well in triple negative disease as in ER positive disease. My decision to use bevacizumab is not dissimilar from my decision to use combination versus single agent chemotherapy in the sense that if I want to maximize the chance of obtaining a response and if I want to try to maximize the time to progression, recognizing that there's going to be very little impact, if at all, on survival, then I would add bevacizumab. I think it's rational to do it a little less commonly in a 75-year-old than a 60-year-old because of the complications. You know, you have to worry more about complications with bevacizumab in older women than in somewhat younger women. And I think that the biggest challenge here is that the median survival for women with triple negative metastatic breast cancer is in the range of a year or just a bit over that. And so we really need new and better therapies If the patient were asymptomatic and you wanted to minimize toxicity, I wouldn't have any trouble with a trial of capecitabine up front. Outside of a trial, I would either use capecitabine or a taxane with or without bevacizumab. And whatever I did first, I would choose the other second. Of course, the whole issue of Bev and metastatic breast cancer is up in the air right now in terms of the FDA. If you didn't have bevacizumab available for whatever reason, regulatory, whatever, would that bother you very much? Or would you be like, well, we're not really losing that much? I wish I knew the patients who seem to get the greatest benefit from bevacizumab. My impression, and this would certainly be consistent with the trials, is that there is a subset of patients who get a very clear benefit from bevacizumab. I don't think it's every single patient, but we still struggle to know how to identify those patients. In the ideal world, I would like to see bevacizumab remain as an option. I don't think it is the standard of care. I think it is a reasonable treatment to consider, but I don't think there is a single standard of care at this moment for the treatment of first-line metastatic breast cancer. So bottom line is I would like to have it continue to be available as an option, and I would use it in situations where I felt that a patient needed the best disease control as soon as possible. So you mentioned the issue of the fact that we could do a lot better in these situations, which kind of leads into the issue of PARP inhibitors that there's a lot of excitement about. One thing we ask these people about, and I want to ask you about, is in what situations would you do a BRCA testing in a patient who does not have a family history, specifically a patient like this, originally diagnosed at age 58 with a triple negative tumor, now metastatic disease? Yeah. Triple negative cancers are more commonly seen in association with BRCA1 mutations, not BRCA2 mutations. If we get to the point that we have an agent available commercially that we know specifically works in patients with BRCA1 or BRCA1 and 2 mutations, then I think there's going to be more of a push to do genetic testing. So for example, Olaparib, the PARP inhibitor that's been looked at in ovarian cancer and breast cancer as a single agent appears to work specifically in patients who have mutations. And if that drug becomes available, then I think that the threshold to test is going to go down. On the other hand, the drug that I think is most likely to gain FDA approval the soonest, and of course I don't know this yet, 
is BSI-201 or Aniprib. And if, in fact, the randomized phase three trial shows anything similar to what was seen in Joyce O'Shaughnessy's randomized phase two trial, I think it's very likely Aniprib will be approved. But as best we know, Aniprib is not a drug that requires the presence of a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation in order to augment the effectiveness of chemotherapy. And the approval will be, I presume, for triple negative breast cancer. So I don't think that's a reason to do testing. So I think I can think of one drug that's available right now, or class of drugs that maybe you'd want to know about BRCA in this situation, and your group's actually done some of the most interesting work on that, and that's the platinums. Well, except I guess I might argue, I figured you'd say that. I think that you might argue in a patient with triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting to try a platinum salt at some point along the way. And I don't know that a mutation is going to push me that much more in the direction of using a platinum salt. You could do it. There is the one trial that I'm aware of, the preoperative trial from Poland, where four cycles of single-agent cisplatin was associated with a remarkably high PATH-CR rate in women with triple-negative BRCA1-associated cancers. But beyond that trial and beyond a lot of preclinical evidence, I'm not sure that we know that the platinum salts are better than other drugs. And even in that trial, we don't know that they're better than other chemotherapy agents for patients with metastatic triple-negative disease. We also tried to tease out from them, and it's kind of a little tricky to figure this out, but what you were getting at before, which is if you had a PARP inhibitor available, we didn't specify which one. Obviously, the two you mentioned, Aniparib and Olaparib, are the two that seem to be the farthest along. But if it were available, would they utilize it in a first-line situation like this? Would they use it but later, or would they not use it at all? And I mean, it's hard to say because maybe they're assuming the phase three study is going to be positive with the Niprib, but the most common answer was they'd use it first line. Yeah. Right now, as you said, if they see in phase three pretty much what they saw in randomized phase two, would you be using it first line? I would use it first line because if what was seen in phase two is seen in phase three, then it's a drug that leads to a survival benefit. And what chemo would you combine it with? Well, you know, I don't necessarily love the carboplatin-gemcitabine combination, but it's the regimen that's been combined with aniprib. And if, in fact, there's a survival benefit of carbogem plus aniprib versus carbogem, then I would tend to use that regimen outside of a trial first line. I don't think that means that the trials end. I think we need to sort out how best to use the PARP inhibitors with what agents. Do you need both gem and carbo or not? I think there are a whole range of questions. And let me just return to one point for a second, which is that by no means do I object to a greater number of people having BRCA1 and 2 testing. And so I think that you could argue, based on what we know about the tumor type seen in women with BRCA1 mutations, to do testing in almost any patient with triple negative breast cancer. I just don't think that at the moment it's going to necessarily change practice a great deal, or it should change practice. But I think that there are relatively few downsides associated with genetic testing. I think the days of worrying about insurance and employment discrimination have really passed. And while for a woman with metastatic breast cancer, you're not going to talk about doing a prophylactic oophorectomy or any other kind of prophylactic surgery, 
the information could be of benefit to her family members, although that, of course, would be up to her. So another thing I want to get your brief take on was another surprise in this survey that we have never seen before. We've been doing at least one of these a year now for a year, sometimes two, is when we presented a patient with metastatic disease, first recurrence, positive nodes by history, ER positive, HER2 negative, pretty classic situation for using endocrine therapy in a patient who had recurred while receiving the AI I was kind of surprised that by far the most common endocrine agent for the first time was fulvestrin. We've never seen that before. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that I can explain that other than the fact that maybe there's a little more enthusiasm around fulvestrin since the trial of double dose versus standard dose showed a small advantage. But I think this is a situation where One could very legitimately use exemestane, where one could entirely legitimately use tamoxifen, which in a randomized trial against fulvestrant, albeit not in patients who had progressed on an AI, but in that trial, the two were essentially equivalent. If anything, tamoxifen might have even been a bit superior in certain measures. You know, I think fulvestrant's fine there, but it's interesting that it's given twice as often as exemestane. Yeah, I also kind of figured maybe it's related to the excitement about the higher dose. And in fact, we saw in the survey people using the higher dose of 500 milligrams, of course, which now has FDA approval. Is that what you're doing in your practice? It is, given the fact that, you know, it's now been FDA approved and it was shown to be a bit superior to the lower doses. So the last thing I want to ask you about is HER2-positive disease, a couple of sort of points of interest. Again, really interesting to watch this evolve over the years. We have a classic kind of situation, but we present different ages of a patient with an ER-positive, HER2-positive tumor with positive node, one node in this case. And we ask people, of course, what they would do in terms of chemo and then trastuzumab in different age, 60, 75, and 85. In the 60-year-old woman, you see kind of a split, 55% versus 38%, 55 for TCH, 38 for an anthracycline or ACTH. You move the patient up to being 75, and you see the anthracyclines kind of go away. You see TCH, and now you're starting to see more TCH with docetaxel. And then when you go up to 85 years old, you see no anthracyclines, but now we start to see trastuzumab monotherapy, 30% of people. How do you approach this situation? Well, I don't give trastuzumab monotherapy in the adjuvant setting because we have absolutely no data to support doing that in my mind. All of the adjuvant trials that have shown benefit with trastuzumab have been when trastuzumab has been given either with or immediately following chemotherapy. And there's probably some reason to think that it's better doing it with than following chemotherapy. In this 85-year-old woman, I would argue that her risk of disease recurrence is moderate. It is by no means certain that she's going to have a recurrence. Her chance of being alive, assuming that she's entirely healthy, her chance of being alive in, let's say, eight years is probably no more than 50%. If she were to develop recurrent disease, it's very likely that it could be 
managed for several years with trastuzumab-based therapy. And then, of course, you do have the option in this woman of giving endocrine therapy, which we believe still has an effect in the setting of HER2-positive disease. Another thing you see, again, with the 85-year-olds, in addition to the trastuzumab monotherapy, is trastuzumab-paclitaxel, a combination your group is studying. What about that regimen, and how old will you go? Well, so again, I'd have to think long and hard about giving a prophylactic course of therapy to an 85-year-old, but I do think that if I were going to give chemotherapy and trastuzumab, this is a setting where I would think about a regimen like paclitaxel and trastuzumab. I'd worry about the toxicity with either TCH and certainly with ACTH, and I think it's a consideration. We actually looked at that regimen in 409 patients with largely node-negative breast cancer with tumors less than 3 centimeters, mostly less than 2 centimeters. The regimen was very well tolerated. We don't have any outcome data yet. But I suspect, although I don't know this, that paclitaxel and trastuzumab is probably not going to be all that different from any other chemotherapy trastuzumab combination that could be given in the adjuvant setting. Now, another question related to HER2-positive disease is the neoadjuvant situation. Here we have a patient who's 60, 4.8 centimeter tumor, wants to have breast-conserving surgery, needs it to be smaller. And it was interesting in terms of what kind of chemo would be combined with trastuzumab neoadjuvantly. The most common was TCH, 65%, but then the second was ACTH neoadjuvantly, about a quarter of doctors. How do you approach that? So we enroll most of these patients on the CLGB trial that is comparing paclitaxel-trastuzumab versus paclitaxel-lapatinib versus paclitaxel plus the two biologic agents together. And outside of a trial, we typically give paclitaxel and trastuzumab as the initial regimen and then follow that with an anthracycline typically after the surgery. Hmm. I wonder how often people, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but I wonder how often people do it. Yeah, it's just reversing the regimen. It's been done before in George Sledge's very old ECOG pilot before the randomized adjuvant trials. I think that is actually how they gave AC and TH. They gave TH followed by AC. Hmm. Really interesting. So another adjuvant HER2 question is, seems like the age old, I guess, so we really have only been talking about it for five years, but it seems like forever, which is the node negative, smaller HER2 positive tumor. In this case, we tried to sort of separate out the issue also of ER positivity. And if the tumor is ER negative and small and node negative, we see that if it's 0.3 centimeters, there's still a substantial number of more than half the doctors would use chemotrastuzumab in that situation. We make the tumor 0.8 centimeters, and that goes up to more than 90%. Agree or disagree? Or is that what you do? So for the patient with an ER-negative 8-millimeter cancer that's HER2-positive, I would typically recommend some form of chemotherapy and trastuzumab. For the woman with an ER-negative 0.3-centimeter cancer, I would be inclined not to but I would probably still discuss it. But again, my default position would not be to do it. I, again, would think about chemotherapy and trastuzumab 
for the 8-millimeter ER-positive cancer, for the 3-millimeter ER-positive cancer, I'd really encourage endocrine therapy only. And we do know, at least in the short term, that women with ER-negative, HER2-negative disease have recurrences that are certainly earlier than women who have ER-positive, HER2-positive disease. So we'll close out with just a couple of points in terms of metastatic HER2-positive disease. One thing that was interesting, we said, are you familiar with the agent TDM1? 67% yes, 33% no, which kind of surprised me. I figured everybody knew about it. But more specifically, we asked if the drug were available, would you use it at all, and if so, where? And what we see is that most people would use it, usually not before trastuzumab, but in various situations after either trastuzumab or lapatinib. If the drug were available to you right now off protocol, how would you be using it, if at all? So I absolutely would use it. I've used it a great deal in the context of clinical trials. It is an incredibly well-tolerated drug that in patients who have received fairly extensive prior anti-HER2 therapy is still remarkably effective. And I would either use it in a first-line or a second-line situation if I had that ability to do it. If it were only approved as a later-line therapy, I would use it in that setting and reserve my earlier use for clinical trials. Now, your group, particularly Nancy Lynn, has been very productive in terms of looking at the issue of CNS METs. We asked these docs, have you seen a patient who you thought had an objective tumor response to systemic anti-HER therapy to a brain met? And actually, more than 60% said yes, they think they've seen it. And interestingly, you would have thought they all would have been lapatinib, but a bunch of them were trastuzumab and actually a couple TDM1 that were on trial. Have you seen this and with what agent? So I don't think I've seen this with TDM1. I've definitely seen it with the combination of capecitabine and lapatinib, and I've also seen it with some trastuzumab combinations, but there it may be just the chemotherapy you're combining with trastuzumab that's leading to that response. We know that chemotherapy to some degree gets into the brain and can lead to objective responses. So last question is the issue of treatment of metastatic disease in a patient who's had prior adjuvant trastuzumab. And because we knew it was an issue, we tried to tease out that in terms of how long it had been since they finished the adjuvant trastuzumab, six months, 18 months, and three years. And what we see is at six months, lapatinib and capecitabine was the most common choice, but trastuzumab chemo was not uncommon. Still a quarter of people would use trastuzumab again versus about a half lapatinib capecitabine. And as soon as we bump it up to 18 months, we see a lot more people wanting to retry trastuzumab. How do you approach that? So, you know, I don't think that these are irrational answers here. I think for the patient who recurs relatively soon after trastuzumab, switching to another anti-HER2 agent is appealing. So that's where the lapatinib capecitabine comes in. But in much the same way that we often take a patient from one trastuzumab chemotherapy regimen to another, this is someone who is essentially the one who's progressed within six months, who's progressed on first-line therapy, you're moving on to second-line therapy, and that second-line therapy could be chemotherapy plus trastuzumab. You know, typically, I would probably, in the patient who recurred early on, use lapatinib and capecitabine, and in the other situations, 
I'd probably retry trastuzumab. You know, when we do these surveys, I always think of things I wish I had asked. And one thing I was curious about is how much of a factor is quality of life in this decision and the perception that a lot of people have that lopatinib's a bit tougher to use than trastuzumab. What's your thought on that? Well, you know, I think quality of life in these settings is always front and center because to my knowledge, there's little evidence that the order in which you use drugs affects overall survival, but it clearly can affect quality of life. So I think that once you take survival out of the equation, then all that's left is quality of life. Since the two things we all care about is how long and how well, and if the response rate is 5 or 10% higher, that's only important if it has a meaningful impact on quality of life or survival. So really final question, which is, we did see in this survey considerably more use of the combination of trastuzumab and lopatinib than we've seen before. How do you utilize that combination outside of protocol in metastatic breast cancer? Well, you know, I was struck by the data from the trial that was led by Joyce O'Shaughnessy and Blackwell that was published in the JCO, I guess, earlier this year, showing a survival advantage for trastuzumab lapatinib in patients with highly refractory disease compared to lapatinib alone. I think there probably is something a little special about the combination We've had trials, and I realize you asked me about non-trial use, but we've had trials giving this in both a first and a second-line setting, which at least you know, on an anecdotal basis have been very encouraging. And I think that this is a combination that has legs, and it's one that I occasionally use outside of a trial, both in patients with fairly refractory disease, but also sometimes in patients with earlier-stage disease where I want to avoid the side effects with chemotherapy. Are there trials looking at TDM1 plus lapatinib right now? To my knowledge, there is not a trial of TDM1 plus lapatinib, but I think it's an excellent idea.